Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Today we are talking about carbon dating. This comes to us compliments of one math Frederick in our video department who requested a podcast on carbon dating. And Robert and I are always happy to oblige. Yeah. Are we not? We are. Send us requests. We will uh, We'll try and do them. Carbon dating actually proved to be a little complicated. So we're going to take it low and slow, as producer Jerry said today. So what is carbon dating used for? Basically, it's just a it's just a method of dating any any organic matter, any bone, maybe a skull that you happen to dig up in your backyard, cloth, wood, plant fibers, any anything of that nature. And carbon dating can be used to determine the age of objects up to about fifty thousand years old. But the, the key is that some part of it has to have been living at some point in the past, right? That is the key. So, like, I couldn't take like an iron sword necessarily, unless it had like some sort of organic wrapper around it or like a hilt or something, right? Yes. Yes, that is correct. And um, carbon dating could potentially figure out the age of an object up to 100,000 years if you uh, happen to have a particle accelerator handy. But how exactly? And who's who's interested in doing all this carbon dating? Like, why, why do we care? It's good to know how old things are. So carbon dating actually has an interesting history when it comes to uh, religion and religious artifacts. Yeah, the most uh, famous being the Shroud of Turin. For those of you who don't remember, this is uh, allegedly the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, after he's crucified, laid in the tomb, he has this uh, shroud over him. It has uh, become an item of legend, a holy relic passed down through the centuries. Whether it's the same art, um, you know, article that's passed down through the centuries or not, that's, that's debatable. Um, and there has been a lot of debate about the Shroud of Turin. Even if you don't get into the whole, uh, into the whole carbon dating uh, thing, which doesn't come along until, uh, you know, the modern era, um, y- you still encounter a lot of disagreement. Uh, just, just to run by how everything works real quick. Like I say, Jesus dies. Cloth okay. is on him, right? Yes. Leaves this print of him, and, and this this is the deal. Like it looks like, like a bearded man. If if you look at it, it's like a this like stains of a bearded man, and there's some blood stains on it, etc. It uh, mysteriously disappeared uh, when Constantinople was uh, sacked in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade. Then in 1357, following the Crusades, it shows up in a French church. Um, then uh, just in a couple of years, it was already getting critics. Uh, from inside the church. Really? Uh, yeah, a, a bishop in uh, 1359, um, you know, criticized and said this can't, you know, be the the real article. Um, and he wasn't even on fire or anything. This is like an actual, like, this is a good bishop, not, you know, a heretic or anything. Um, and anyway, he ended up getting moved to uh, Turin, and it's been there since 1578. So have they done some carbon dating on the, uh, on the shroud? Yes, they have done some uh, carbon dating on the shroud. Of course, it had to wait until we had the technology to do it. Uh but in 1988, um, they cut a corner off of the shroud, all right? And then they cut that corner in half. And then they took one of those halves, and they divided it into three pieces. Okay. All right? And they sent uh, one piece to, to a scientist in Oxford, one piece to scientist in Zurich, and one piece to scientist in Arizona. And was this to maybe to assure some level of objectivity or 
you know, independently verified by three labs. Yeah, that was the one. idea. And I think originally they, were, they wanted to send it to more. Like, I think it was originally they were going to go to five or something. Okay. Uh, but they ended up just doing three. And yeah, they're, they're, they've, the Catholic Church has been, uh, historically kind of stingy with handing out the pieces. I mean, for understandable well, yeah, reasons. I've... It's, because if it's, if it's really the, you know, the burial cloth of the Son of God, you know, then it's, uh, this is an important thing. You can't just be clipping it up every time somebody wants to, you know, do some sort of analysis on it. Uh, in fact, they, they rarely even show it to the public. Uh, it last went on display in uh, the year 2000, and it's not going to go on display again until 2025. Um, and also, I think this has come up before when we've talk, talked about the, the study of uh, anything that's uh, of, of religious value when it's uh, faith and, and science meeting. It's like, what, what's the, you know, what's the real gain for the church, right? Like, everybody's supposed to be believing in things based on uh, on faith, right? Not because a new scientist has an article about it that says, hey, this uh, was totally uh, laying on Jesus uh, several centuries back. But anyway, that's a, whole, that's a whole tangent. So anyway, the three studies came back. All of them had uh, performed carbon dating, mm-hmm. and they concluded that the cloth was woven between 1260 and 1390 A.D. Okay, so what do those dates mean? That means there's a problem, because Jesus was long gone by that point um and it means that would position the shroud around uh the time of its earliest um documented appearance um, so this could have been a forgery a fake yeah that, that's the the argument that it's some there's basically a medieval forgery and of course that then introduces a whole host of other uh you know questions like who's who forged it how did they forge it and you know people go crazy with these ideas well given that the shroud is passed hands so many times isn't it possible that the the shroud was contaminated Yes, that's one uh, theory. Uh, uh, mainly, there was a fire in uh, 1532, and it was uh, apparently partially damaged uh, at that point. And people, uh, uh, some of the supporters, especially uh, U.S. Uh, physicist John Jackson, who's been uh, heavily involved in the study of the shroud, um, he maintains that that uh, that this damage could have uh, offset the, uh, the the carbon dating. Um, yeah, he says that elevated levels of carbon monoxide could then have skewed the 1988 uh, carbon-14 dating by uh, 1,300 years. Uh, his theory suggests that, that only a 2% contamination is enough to skew carbon dating results by uh, 1,500 years. So uh, that's one theory. Then there are also arguments that cotton patches were added to it uh, in the 16th century. And so, again, you have, uh, you know, um, a more, more recent material um, unbalancing the measurements. Then in 1999, I understand they um, took some samples. Uh, they analyzed some seed and plant samples that they found on the shroud, and this actually seemed to contradict the 1988 findings that mm-hmm. uh, it, it was a forgery. So, yeah, it gets really heated. And then there's, I mean, there are people who, who say, "Well, hey, these materials couldn't have come from this region," or, or they, you know, or, or you know, we critics that cite uh, what we know about uh, burial practices at the time. Um, Etc. It's it's a heated argument. You can really you can really go nuts with this one. But that brings us back to carbon dating, though. Um, you know what's what is actually going on in the process? Well, let's uh, let's take it to outer space. Okay. It starts with some cosmic rays zipping in from outer space into the Earth's atmosphere, mm-hmm. and these guys are zipping in so fast it's like roughly the speed of light. So a lot of these rays are entering the atmosphere at any given moment, say right now. And the protons of these speedy rays are interacting with the nitrogen in the atmosphere. Okay. And you remember that nitrogen is, is pretty um, 
it's pretty popular in our uh, in our planet's atmosphere. It composes about 78% of Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you have these rays coming in, bombarding the Earth at, at any moment, and you have all this nitrogen. So you have a, a good chance that the nitrogen and the uh, cosmic rays are going to meet up. Right. And they do. And it's it's an exciting meeting as far as these things go. So exciting that the nitrogen is prompted to lose a proton, gain a neutron, and assume the identity of carbon-14. The carbon-14 that's used in carbon-14 dating. Okay. And carbon-14 is an unstable form or isotope of carbon. Okay. So let's take it back for a second. Cosmic rays are coming in. Mm-hmm. They're hitting nitrogen. Nitrogen's being transformed into uh, carbon-14. So scientists think that the rate of carbon-14 in the atmosphere is constant. The rate of production of this right. carbon-14 is constant. And as a, as a living organism, I'm going to have more or less that constant rate inside me while yes. I'm alive. Yes, exactly. Okay. So like we were just talking about, carbon-14 is radioactive. And what mm-hmm. does radioactivity mean? Decay. Right. You know, and, and when you're talking about elements like uh, uranium or, you know, carbon-14, it's just indicating that um, an isotope is going to be spontaneously emitting these energetic particles, mm-hmm. like, you know, an electron. And uh, the, the atom's nucleus is going to be disintegrating or decaying or changing. The rate at which this change takes place is called the half-life. A lot of times you'll hear scientists talking about half-lives in conjunction with radioactivity. So a half-life is the time that it takes for half of the atoms of a radioactive substance to disintegrate. Okay. So in the case of carbon-14, that half-life is 5,730 years. So now that you know a little bit about the personality, so to speak, of carbon-14, let's talk about how it makes it into plants and, and animals. So growing plants, as you guys know, take in carbon dioxide all the time. They, uh, they use the carbon to get rid of the oxygen. And... They're not averse to taking in a little carbon-14, too. In fact, anything that eats a plant is going to take in some carbon-14, like us. You like to eat plants, right? I do. I'm I'm rather fond of them. The idea behind carbon dating is that the percentage of carbon-14 found in living things is the same as in the atmosphere. So your ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, which is the stable form of carbon, is going to stay the same while you're alive. Okay. So when a plant or animal dies, though, it stops taking in carbon, right? But remember, your carbon-14 is all crazy and it's radioactive, so it's going to go on being radioactive, and it's going to go on to decay into stable carbon. So the idea behind carbon dating is actually pretty simple. Scientists look at the ratio of these two forms of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-14, in a sample, and then they compare it to the ratio in a living organism. So look at this ratio in a dead organism and look at this ratio in a living organism. And remember that the ratio in a living organism is constant. It stays the same. So if you compare the two, you can find out how much time has elapsed. And why can we figure out how much time has elapsed? Because we can, by looking at, like you just said, by looking at the balance between carbon-12 and carbon-14. So by looking at this difference between the two ratios, we can tell how old something is because we know the half-life of carbon-14. So this is a pretty handy technique to do, to have um, when you're trying to determine the age of whatever organic object you happen to dig up on your archaeological expedition, whatever shroud you happen to plunder from yeah. Constantinople. You have a random chunk of a an old bishop or a or any kind of prophet happening to you know being laying around. So you know, actually, the Catholic Church um, did some carbon dating. Um, 
on the Apostle Paul. And the, the result of that test seemed to conclude that they, they did in fact belong to him. And Paul, of course, uh, was one of the two main guys known for spreading the Christian faith after Jesus Christ died. So you might wonder, I mean, how do we know that carbon-14 dating works? So like any good scientist, you're not going to just accept that carbon-14 dating works as a method. You're going to verify it with with the... Yeah, you're going to check your answers. And they have, in fact, done that. They've used carbon-14 dating on objects whose ages were known, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this relatively cool technique has its limitations, like anything does. Right, like with the shroud. If you have other... um, If the sample has been compromised at any point in the past, uh, in... Like the one argument saying that, oh, they added some cotton patches to the shroud uh, centuries later. Well, now you have uh, you have newer material and older material, and the balance could theoretically be different um, between the two and uh, throw things off. Or you have uh, you know you have uh, carbon monoxide from a fire, uh, you know, so you have fresh um, fresh carbon uh, infiltrating the uh, the artifact. Right, carbon contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you, you you probably need a large sample size. And um, if you're going to have to bust out, say, a particle accelerator for your mm-hmm. sample, it's, it's going to be pretty price prohibitive. Mm-hmm. And so here's the tricky thing is actually that ratio of C14 to C12 isn't constant. Although scientists have begun to understand how to calibrate for this deviation in the ratio. Um, but there is a bit of tweaking going on with carbon-14 dating. And then you have stuff like man messing it up. Mm-hmm. If you factor in stuff like ozone layer depletion, then you're going to have more uh, C14 forming because you're going to have more cosmic rays coming in and bombarding. Right. And I think uh, there have been similar uh, um, accusations made about uh, the use of nuclear power or the detonation of uh, nuclear armaments could throw things off. But uh, generally, you want to rely on other sources as well. It's a it's a great tool, but it's not the the only tool for determining the age of an of an object. Best if you can back it up with other other means. So there you have it, Matt. There's your podcast on uh, carbon dating. Eat it. <laughs> if you have a question about this cool technology, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. We also have a whole article about it that's uh, pretty good, as I recall, um, how, how carbon dating works. We sure do. Uh, hey, so why don't we open up some of that listener mail? Well, we will do that. But first, I just wanted to get to a quick correction that oh. was sent to us from Shane. And uh, Shane has a pretty cool uh, company called Scales and Tails Utah. And they have an awesome motto. The motto there is, where we say fun with a forked tongue. Oh, wow. I can't possibly imagine what that business consists of. Well, funny you should ask, Robert. It's a uh, an, an entertaining, educational, and interactive reptile show. So they, oh, okay. you know, go That's around. not to... at all what I was imagining. That sounds awesome. It is pretty cool. I, I checked it out. I mean, I would like for my uh, my daughter to be exposed. So this is like when they bring, like, lizards to school. Mm-hmm. And, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And um, Shane from Scales and Tails actually... Uh, he said he had six monitor lizards, I, b- I believe. Wow. But Shane's correction was, um, in our Komodo dragons uh, podcast, if you happen to catch that, um, we did say that Komodo dragons can do a lot of cool stuff, and they can. But one cool thing they cannot do, they cannot unhinge their jaws. They do, however, have a pretty flexible jaw. And, and I really have to take part of the blame for this one, because um, I usually unhinge my jaw if I'm eating a hamburger or even some of the the larger slide, sliders, you know. I've okay. seen you do that at your yeah. desk. It's so, pretty I mean, grotesque. Yeah, so you know, I do it, and I figure most people and most animals do it. So, um, you know, that's what I get for generalizing. Oh, and hey, if you want to check out Shane's site, it's uh, www.scalesandtailsutah.com. So there you have it, Shane. Thanks for uh, alerting us to that correction. All right, now let's open that mail. 
Let's open the mail. This is very exciting. So this piece of mail came to us a a couple days ago. Hello, Alice. My name is actually Allison, but that's okay. Just in the ballpark. Like we know you, Robert and Jerry. And Jerry, you spelled your name correctly. I just listened to your podcast on T Rexes and the one on Komodo dragons, and enjoyed both of them. You guys are really good, and I'm really interested in reptiles. While on a family vacation, I was too young to remember. I was followed for several days by a Komodo. Can Whoa. you believe that? Several days. I like know. I picture it like in a car, like tailing them. <laughs> the Komodo behind. Yeah, them. <laughs> like they're on a family road trip, and it's like they look back and Komodo duck, in sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, ducks back into a diner. Continuing, I thought that the only poisonous lizards were the Mexican beaded lizard and the Gila monster. I also wanted to add that T-Rexes may also have had feathers, which was told to me by Professor Prum of Yale. I don't know if it was his theory or not. That was in Perens. It seemed interesting and painted the T-Rex as a sort of giant toothed chicken. Again, you guys are my favorite podcast and will keep listening as long as you make them. Signed, Jack, Los Angeles, age 12. Aw. Thanks, Jack. That's great. So if you guys have a correction or want to send us a, a note or tell us how we're doing. Yeah, or hit us with those suggestions. You want to hear about a topic, then, uh, you know, we'll you know what to give do. it a shot. Send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. That's all I got for today. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.